0: Greetings, my friends. Welcome to the Wayfarer podcast, third installment of the podcast, and we're still going, which is, I guess, says something that uh, we're still going past two. Thanks for those of you who've been encouraging and reached out and told me that uh, you appreciate that we're doing this. And um, a couple uh, housekeeping items before we get started today. I've had people ask me, how do I know when you're going to be speaking and giving a message there in the local gathering of Jesus followers? And I try and always put the schedule on my uh, blog, on my website, TomBanderwell.com or TomBanderwell.wordpress.com. There's a link up at the top of the page that says upcoming messages or upcoming appearances or something like that. And then I always kind of put where I'm going to be uh, coming up. Just finished in our local uh, gathering the second section of uh, studying the Acts of the Apostles and wrapped that up last Sunday. This Sunday, the 10th of March, will be kicking off the season of Lent. And so the 10th of March, and again on the 31st of March, I can be found in the auditorium venue at Third Church in Pella. There's always my messages. I try and always put the YouTube version, uh, if it's available, on my blog. So there, uh, again, at tomvanderwell.com, there's a messages link up at the top of the page. And that uh, will take you to my messages via video there at Third Church. Otherwise, um, I think that's it. Wendy and I are getting out of Dodge from this cold, bitter winter uh, for a week. Going to go to sunny California. Can't wait for that. Looking forward to uh, spending some time with good friends out there, a little R&R. Also want to let everyone know that I'm actually going to go dark for about 40 days. Yeah, starting tomorrow, uh, starting on Ash Wednesday, and I'm going to go dark uh, from social media and from blogging and I will pick up again after Easter. So I don't know. Wendy do asked me, what about your podcast? I, you know, if uh, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll sit down and, and record something. We'll have to see. Keep, uh, keep tuned and, uh, you can subscribe by the way to the podcast from Apple iTunes and Google play. Both of those places uh, where you can subscribe. And of course, the podcast will always be found and posted on. The blog. Last podcast was brought to us by the letter C. I'm not planning on doing this every podcast, but I am going to continue because it just worked. This podcast brought to you by the letter S. So, what do we got today? We got Spriggs, Spec, Spike, System, Salem, Settle, Scapegoat, lots of S words want to start with a kind of cocktail party icebreaker question, and you've probably had this one somewhere along the line or in a small group or whatever. Your most embarrassing moment. Have you ever got that one? (laughs) What's your most embarrassing moment? The thing that you look back and go, oh, man, I can't believe And for a lot of us, it goes all the way back into being a young adult, those years of puberty, high school, uh, maybe college, where you just do some really stupid things. My embarrassing moment that I want to talk about today is all the way back in middle school. I was a big lover of Southern rock. Marshall Tucker Band, Leonard Skynyrd, 38 Special, Elvin Bishop. I just loved Southern rock all the old Capricorn artists, and one of the themes, Charlie Daniels was another one, one of the themes in Southern Rock was, because they were all from the South, they came a lot from Tennessee and South Carolina and Alabama and those areas, there was a theme in Southern Rock kind of... uh, identifying with the Confederacy and I, you know, I think there was a song that was really, when you listen to the lyrics was really about Southern rock. It was really about music and the fact that most of the Southern rock artists came from the South, but the name of the song was be proud. You're a rebel. The South's going to do it again, obviously identifying with the Confederacy and back of the civil war. So I and a couple of knucklehead friends back in puberty, and again we're talking thirteen, fourteen years old, kind of took on this uh we called ourselves the Rebel Rousers. <laughs> and we had yeah, you know, it was silly, it was stupid, uh embarrassed to even admit that. We had t shirts made and uh it was really embarrassing. People made fun of us. Can't even believe it. But one of the interesting things, looking back on that. Is that the principal of our middle school was an amazing man and an amazing educator. His name was Lacey Spriggs and Mr. Spriggs was an African American. And of course, Mr. Spriggs could just, just knew from, you know, uh, the t-shirts we were wearing and the word getting around uh, the hallways of Meredith Junior High, uh, that we had dubbed ourselves the Rebel Rousers and And I was an idiot. I didn't realize all of the implications of what that meant. I didn't realize how offensive that was. Didn't realize the history of it. Didn't realize all of the layers of meaning of it. I was just a knucklehead, adolescent, zit-faced twerp who liked Southern rock music. And i remember Mr. Spriggs calling me into his office one day and sitting me down and, and trying so patiently and so gently to help me understand the connotations that that it had for him as an African-American. I didn't get it at the time. I remember almost being like a little confused and I didn't know what he was getting at. He was so patient with me. Um, And he he tried his best, and and he was so gracious as well. And just let it set. And I think he just said, hey, I'm going to tell you this, and maybe someday it will sink in. And eventually, Mr. Spriggs, it did. Uh, In fact, just a few years ago, my dad, I was visiting him, and he said, do you remember— a gentleman by the name of Mr. Spriggs, and I'm like going, yeah, of course I do. He's like, I ran into him when I was walking at the mall. We were chatting and having coffee after walking and introduced ourselves, and he remembers you and said to say hi and said that he has such fond memories of you and wanted to hear all about you, and I just, ugh. I just wanted to go, if you see him again, tell him I'm sorry. Tell him I'm so sorry for being the the kid that he had to put up with and tried to talk sense to. Do you have those moments? Do do you have those things that you look back on and go, I can't believe it? Yeah, I think we do. Because we're all on this journey, aren't we? I mean it is a journey. That's what the, the wayfarer being on a journey is all about. We're not the people that we used to be. We progress in the journey. And how we choose to walk this journey, it it impacts, you know, all the systems that we're a part of. So let's let's switch into that the next S word systems. I am intrigued by systemic and systems theory. The reality is this, every wherever a group of humans get together, they create a system. The, your family is a system. Your marriage is a system. Your business and the team at work is a system. Uh, at school, there's a system. At church, it's a system. Humans interacting with one another for a special purpose or cause or in this group to accomplish this purpose, it becomes a system. And every member of that system impacts that system and how it functions. And we don't often think systemically. But the reality is, as I progress in my journey... I've come to understand the system is going to influence me. It will, positively or negatively, healthy or unhealthy. I am going to be impacted by the systems in which I exist and operate. I am going to influence those systems. Now, I can I, I can blindly influence them without really even thinking about it. I'm going to, but I'm going to influence it. So think about family. For a lot of us, we've maybe been through, you've talked about how the, the child birth order affects how people behave in the family, how different personalities impact both the marriage and the children and the parenting style. And there's, but the family operates in the system. When I was in my late, eh, going to my late 20s, I began to really push into How my family system influenced me and how I influenced my family system, how it made me what I am, but also what influence and impact I can bring to my family, either for, uh, you know, I want it to be a healthy, positive way. I found out at this point in my journey, by chance, I was traveling on business and was in Texas and my brother lived in Texas at that point, and we got together. And I hadn't spoke to my brother, you know, really had a good conversation with him in years. Seven years older than me, off doing his own thing. And we got together and began to talk. And that became one of the most interesting waypoints of my journey. Because what I found out in talking to my brother now is uh, I'm in my mid 20s late 20s and he's in his early 30s is that he was on the same journey I was. He was trying to figure himself out. We were both seeing therapists at the time. We were both trying to unpack these things. And so we got to walk together in this and we still are. Uh not quite as maybe intensely uh, as we did back then, but we still get together and talk about what we bring to our family and and how we can influence it positively. And I remember talking with my brother at that point about the fact of this paradigm where as an adult, you go back home and you're not the child that you used to be. But yet when you step foot in that house and you start interacting with your family members, there is this almost unconscious pull and you fall right back into the system just as you did as a teenager or as a child. I can remember thinking, okay, you know, I know that in my family system, evenings are spent quietly, everyone watching the television and thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go home tonight and, and, you know, I'm going to start a conversation and I want, I want to, Have a conversation and talk about things and get into some of these issues that I've been dealing with and ask mom and dad some questions and, and don't look at the television. Don't go retire into the living room. We're going to, we're going to have a good, healthy conversation. And then you go and you sit down and you have dinner and you just can't break. The cycle, <laughs> you fall back into it and then you later smack yourself in the head and go, oh, I did it again. Yeah, that's how systems work. And sometimes we know that we're in the middle of it. But how do we progress? How do we change? How do we influence the system for the positive? Well, that's how, that's part of the growth of the journey. That's part of... um What we learn as we move forward, and hopefully, as we become more healthy as individuals, we help influence systems that we interact with in a healthy way. Yeah, now, when systems and that's the thing, when systems are healthy, they bring growth and health to those who are in that system. When systems are unhealthy, They bring dysfunction. There's a dysfunction that's created. It can be anything from a fairly benign, it's just annoying, to being downright destructive to the individuals who are involved in that system. So I think that as I've gone on, I've learned to think about every system that I'm involved in. How am I going to influence it? How can it be more positive when I... Became leader of our business here a year ago, just over a year ago. One of the things that I wanted to bring to our business and to the system and the people that work in our system is how can I make sure that we are a healthy system? How can we deal with some of the things that were have been dysfunctional in the past and how can we begin to have clear communication and make sure that we are a healthy growing system for everybody that's involved? And I'm still in the process of that. And I've got one of our board members helping me with that. And we're, but it, it takes, it takes a proactive decision and a willingness also to look at what's not healthy and name it and say, this needs to change. And then go about the steps that need to take place in order for that to happen. Systems exist on a societal level. One of my favorite plays, um, most people know that I'm a theater guy, and one of my favorite plays, I've never had a chance to actually be in the actual production, but it's Arthur Miller's The Crucible, and it's the story of the Salem Witch Trials. And it's fascinating. And in fact, in some ways, it is so relevant today. And what's interesting is that Arthur Miller wrote the play in reaction to what was happening in the 1950s with the McCarthy uh, communist. Witch hunt that was happening where if anybody was part of the communist party, if anybody was a communist sympathizer, they were hunted down and brought before the, uh, you know, the, the government and might be blacklisted from Hollywood. And there was all of this stuff from, and it, that became a societal system where, where we looked for people that didn't fit what we wanted it to be, and then we ostracized them, we scapegoated them and punished them according to the society system at that time. And so in the Salem Witch Trials, if you're unfamiliar, it was a group of, interestingly enough, adolescent girls. Uh, what is it about adolescents that brings out the, the crazy and, and foolishness in all of us, but a, a group of adolescent girls began claiming that they saw different adults in the community conspiring with the devil they were having visions and in Arthur Miller's rendition of in uh, his take on it you know he builds into it the storyline where one of the girls one of the ringleaders uh, of the girls actually has something for one of the men married men in town and so she sees his wife conspiring with the devil, knowing what? She's going to be accused and maybe hanged, and then he won't be married anymore, and she might get to marry him. See how insidious that is? So the system, and then what happened in Salem is if you were accused by these adolescent girls, you had to prove the negative. You were brought for trial, and you had to prove that you weren't conspiring with the devil. Well, how can you not? I mean, you've got these girls who are accusing you and saying they saw you, well, how do you prove that they didn't see you? How do you prove that you weren't? And so what happened was that a bunch of people were hung for being witches when it wasn't true. And just the accusation was enough to convict people. See, that's a, that, on a community societal level. That's a system that's dysfunctional and it's not, it's, it's scapegoating people. It's not working well. It's actually destructive. It even destroys lives and that's not what we want. So why am, why am I talking about this right now? As I look around me and I read the headlines and Wendy and I talk about life, um, and as we are processing things together, we have been noticing that systemically things are happening right now that that are kind of dysfunctional. One of the things that's happening is that media and when I use media, I'm not just talking about mass uh, commercial media like the broadcasts and the newspapers and, and They can be susceptible too. But the fact that we have an internet and we have social media and anyone at any level can publish anything. We are in a system whereby anyone can take one thing and broadcast it to seem like it's something else. And we've seen multiple examples of this fake photos. You see it. That's why we have Snopes.com trying to say this is fake. This is not fake because anybody can make an accusation. Anybody can take a sound bite or a video bite and either doctor it or present it in such a way that it appears that one thing is happening when it's not true. So that's number one. Number two is that We now are back to a place where just the accusation against somebody can inflame the community, can inflame society against that person with no evidence. And by the time the evidence does come to light, it's already been out there, and the person's already been condemned, and they've already been scapegoated, and people will continue to use what was false as an axe to grind if it fits the narrative that they agree with. Thirdly, people are being condemned today for the stupidity of years ago, of the foolishness, of the zit-faced, knuckle-headed adolescent foolishness. I had a friend in high school, I'll refer to as Spike. Spike today is an amazing man. He is an accomplished professional. He is doing all sorts of great things in his field. He is husband, father, uh, just just a wonderful human being that I am glad to know and have known uh, through his whole journey. Back in the day, Spike was a wild child and he did some things. Think of, you know, think of the uh, animal house hangover, all of the sophomoric, stupid things that guys do when they're in middle school and high school and college. uh, And Spike would have been in the middle of all of it. And as we were talking recently, he mentioned uh, almost in fear that That he could lose his job if some of the stupid things that he did that he regrets that that are not indicative of the person he is today came to light. It would be used against him. I think about my grandpa Speck. My grandpa Speck was, you know, I think like a lot of us growing up so ignorant of so many things. And I can remember the way that he regarded African-Americans as a child. And I don't think that he even knew or interacted with any African-Americans, but he held the, all the cliche stereotypes. Then, as he aged, found himself in the healthcare system, he was four years invalid. And I watched as his grandson... As day after day, African Americans who were amazing, loving, gracious professionals, nurses, aides, doctors, health workers, administrators, did their best to make him comfortable and help him get healthy. And I watched my grandfather's attitude change. I watched him grow in love and respect. I saw him progress as a human being. And I watched and took notes and said to myself, I want in the late stages of my life, To continue to become a better person, to continue to learn, to overcome the mistakes of my foolishness and ignorance of the past and continue to become a better person. He inspired me. And I've seen that in other people as well, that they didn't settle. And there's the other S word, because here's the thing. Some of us, we, we don't have to change the system. We don't have to progress. We can settle for just blindly, ignorantly doing what we've always done, being who we've always been. In fact, I wrote a character. I wrote a play a few years ago, called Ham Buns and Potato Salad. Ham Buns and Potato Salad, about a small town. A guy who has left the the town right after high school, has not been back for many years, comes back because he's got to come back for the funeral of his parents. And one of the characters in the play that I wrote specifically about this is because he. it was the guy that is the same at 30 or 32 as he was at 18. He never ever progressed. He settled. He stayed and he relives his glory days of high school, being the homecoming king and being in the state finals in football and the records he set at the high school. And that is where he settled in life and never progressed past that point. We can be that, we can settle. Or we can progress, we can keep going, we can keep moving. We can keep getting better along the way. And that's who I want to be, yeah. We're on a journey. I'm not who I was before. Old things pass away. And when a system or a society says that we're not going to let the old things pass away. We are going to condemn you today for the person that you were 30 years ago or for the mistakes that you made 30 years ago. That's unhealthy. and I don't care what kind of system it is, whether it's a family or a school or a business or society. Health is when we progress. Health is when we learn redemption. Health is when we grow and we become better. And we don't hold people's pasts against them, but we allow them to be judged upon the person that they have become. So please hear what I'm saying in this. I'm not talking about violent crimes or heinous acts for which there are laws and statutes of limitations. I'm talking about the foolish things that you do as a zit-faced, knuckle-headed twerp of an adolescent teenager who really just doesn't understand the world and doesn't understand that putting on a T-shirt that says Rebel Rouser could have a completely different meaning to somebody from a different walk of life. And I'm so thankful for Mr. Spriggs because in calling me into his office, he wasn't condemning, he wasn't judgmental, he wasn't bitter. He was patient and kind and gracious. And he really gave me a gift that day knowing that it could take years of the journey before I progressed to the point where I could appreciate the gift of his experience and his perspective. He wasn't focused on the person that I was even in that moment. He saw the person that I could be as I progressed in my journey. And his words to me were seeds that were planted that he knew in his wisdom would grow and bear good fruit, or at least hope so, when they were watered. And they did. Mr. Spriggs passed away a couple years ago, and I read it in the paper. So thankful for people like that in my own journey. And as I have grown and progressed, now I want to be that kind of person. I want to be a Mr. Spriggs to those who are coming up behind Knowing that they're gonna progress as well and grow, and I need to give them some grace and be patient and kind and give them that same gift. Pay it forward. And we've got to keep progressing, gotta keep growing. Yeah. I wanna keep pressing on, progressing in my journey. As the apostle Paul said, forgetting what lies behind. I wanna press on to the higher calling that Christ Jesus has for me. And so, my friends, that's what I'm thinking about this week. I hope, wherever you are in your journey, that you are well. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, May God hold you in the palm of his hand. Greetings, friend. Welcome back to the Wayfarer Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderwell. Thanks so much for joining me again today on this chapter, The Journey. Genesis 27 is where we're at, and it was verse 20 that resonated with me. Isaac asked his son Jacob, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord, your God, gave me success, Jacob replied. Today's podcast is entitled Dysfunctional. Death and funerals tend to bring out all of the fun in family (laughs) dysfunction. I remember officiating one funeral in which siblings and their families stayed in opposite rooms in their parents' home, and I had to bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball to make the service arrangements because they wouldn't speak to one another or be in the same room. I've done multiple funerals in which it was doubtful that a child or children would even show up. I've witnessed the fallout from parental favoritism, parental disfavor, deception, hatred, mishandled inheritance, and the relational scars of unreconciled issues or arguments that are decades old. Family systems are... Mysterious and complex, parents, children, personalities, power, favor, honor, and inheritance can make for a highly dysfunctional systemic cocktail. So today's chapter isn't all that surprising to me. Isaac has always favored his son Esau, the firstborn twin. Esau is an alpha male with all the unchecked emotions and aggressions that often go with it. He's a rugged outdoorsman and a skilled hunter. Isaac is a mirror image of this. Jacob is a mirror image of this. A mama's boy, quiet, quick-minded, and shrewd. Esau has married two Hittite women who have upset the system and have become the bane of Rebecca, his mother's existence. Perhaps this is part of her motivation for urging Isaac's deceptive theft of his older brother's position as the head of the clan. Perhaps this is part of her motivation for urging Jacob's deceptive threat. Perhaps this is part of her motivation for urging Jacob's deceptive theft of his older brother's position as inheriting the head of the clan. Perhaps she believes that Esau will be a foolish, temperamental leader who will make life miserable for everyone in the clan. Whatever the motivation. Jacob lives up to his name, which means deceiver. He pretends to be his brother, deceives his father, and receives the blessing that rightfully belonged to Esau. Jacob will succeed his father as head of the family and administrate his father's inheritance. Now what struck me as I read the chapter this morning is that Jacob, when addressing his father, refers to God as the Lord your God. At this point in the story, Jacob doesn't appear to have a personal relationship with the God of his grandfather and father. He's at arm's length with God, and perhaps this helps explain his willingness to deceive his own father and dishonor his own brother. You know, along my journey, I have found that those who have not actually read, or digested the great story often have the notion that the biblical heroes like jacob were righteous upstanding examples of godliness to the point of not being human but nothing could be further from the truth i offered jacob as exhibit a he was flawed he was a flawed human being in a dysfunctional family system and his faith journey and life journey or a struggle, a wrestling match with God and others. Even as he progresses in his own personal journey, he will be forced to deal with the fallout of his own dysfunctional family choices. Jacob is a work in progress. And in the quiet this morning, I take some solace in this. I, mean, I have my own issues and dysfunctional blind spots. Even after 40 years as a Jesus follower, I'm still a work in progress. And so is everyone else. Again, if you want to apply the rules of cancel culture to me, then you might as well go ahead and close the browser or stop this podcast, move on, and don't look back. I'm just glad that God shows himself to be one who mercifully wraps his grace around my human failures and redeems my tragic flaws in transforming me throughout my own story. Last night, Wendy read me a post by a word artist and, that we love and support. Her words feel like they were a divine appointment this morning. Here's just a partial of what she wrote. You do not have to be who you have been You can think differently, feel differently. Don't let anyone nail you to a selfhood that no longer belongs to you. She then went on to offer a breathing prayer. Inhale, I am not who I once was. Exhale, I am known and forgiven. Beautiful. By the way, that's from Cole Arthur Riley. You can find her on Patreon. And on Instagram, at Black Liturgies. Have a great day, my friend. See you back here tomorrow. Hello there, friend. Welcome back to the Wayfarer Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderwell. Thanks so much for joining me once again on this chapter day journey. We're in Genesis chapter 27, and it was verse 20 that resonated with me this morning says that Isaac asked his son Jacob, "How did you find it so quickly, my son?" And Jacob replies, "The Lord, your God, gave me success." Today's podcast is entitled Dysfunctional. Death and funerals tend to bring out all of the fun in family dysfunction. <laughs> I remember officiating one funeral in which siblings and their families stayed in opposite rooms in their parents' home, and I had to bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball to make the service arrangements because they wouldn't speak to one another or even be in the same room. I've done multiple funerals in which it was doubtful that a child or children of the deceased would even show up. I've witnessed the fallout from parental favoritism, parental disfavor, deception, Hatred, mishandled inheritance, and the relational scars of unreconciled issues or arguments that are decades old. This stuff all seems to show itself at a funeral. Family systems are mysterious and complex, I found. Parents, children, personalities, power, favor, honor, and inheritance. They all make for a highly dysfunctional systemic cocktail. So today's chapter isn't all that surprising to me. Isaac has always favored his son Esau, the firstborn twin. Esau is an alpha male with all the unchecked emotion and aggression that often go with it. He's a rugged outdoorsman, a skilled hunter. Jacob is a mirror image of his brother, a mama's boy. Quiet, quick minded, and shrewd. Esau has married two Hittite women who have upset the system and have become the bane of his mother Rebecca's existence. And perhaps this is part of the motivation for urging Jacob's deceptive theft of his older brother's position as the heir to be head of the clan. Perhaps she believes that Esau will be a foolish temperamental leader who will make life miserable for everyone. Whatever the motivation, Jacob lives up to his name, which means deceiver, by the way. He pretends to be his brother, deceives his father, and receives the blessing that rightfully belonged to Esau. Jacob will succeed his father as head of the family and administrate his inheritance. What struck me as I read the chapter this morning is that Jacob, when addressing his father, refers to God as the Lord, your God. At this point in the story, Jacob doesn't appear to have a personal relationship with the God of his grandfather and father. He's got God at arm's length, and perhaps this explains or helps to explain his willingness to deceive his own father and dishonor his own brother. Along my journey, I found That those who have not actually read or digested (laughs) the great story often have the notion that the biblical heroes like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were somehow righteous, upstanding examples of godliness to the point of not even being human. But nothing could be further from the truth. I offered Jacob as exhibit A. He was flawed. He was a flawed human in a dysfunctional family system and his faith journey and life journey are a struggle, a wrestling match with God and others. Even as he progresses in his own personal journey and relationship with God, he will be forced to deal with the fallout of what will be his own dysfunctional family choices. Jacob is a work in progress. And in the quiet this morning... I take some solace in this. I mean, I have my own issues and dysfunctional blind spots. Even after 40 years as a Jesus follower, I'm still a work in progress. And so is everyone else. Again, if you want to apply the rules of cancel culture to me, then you might as well go ahead and stop this podcast and move on. I'm just glad that God shows himself to be one who mercifully wraps his grace around my own human failures and redeems my tragic flaws in transforming me slowly throughout my own story. Last night, Wendy read me a post by a word artist that we love and support, and her words feel like they were a divine appointment this morning. Here's a partial of what she wrote. You do not have to be who you have been. You can think differently, feel differently. Don't let anyone nail you to a selfhood that no longer belongs to you. End quote. She goes on to offer a breathing prayer where you inhale one statement and exhale the other. So the inhale, I am not who I once was. Exhale, I am known and forgiven. By the way, that's by Cole Arthur Riley. You can find her on Patreon and on Instagram at Black Liturgies. I hope you have a great day, my friend. We'll see you back here tomorrow.